This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. Hi, and welcome to EM Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe. This week, we are going to do something a little bit different. It's just going to be you and I kind of chit-chatting a little bit about some things that are going on in the world. And uh, I think the one that I really want to cover is emergency management leadership. And what's this mean? So a couple of things that are going on. You have West Virginia right now going through some trials and tribulations with what to do with the emergency management uh, office, you know, whether it's going to be part of the National Guard or if it's going to stay 100% civilian operated. They're not really sure. And there's debate going on between, you know, the emergency managers and the governor's office and some legislature and a lot of things going on with that. And it just came to bear to mind to me that we really need to discuss exactly what it means to be in leadership. I got to attend a seminar put on by Jacko Wilnick, the author of Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership. A lot of the stuff that was in there, you know, we, we've kind of discussed before in, in certain ways, but I think it was a few things that he did that put it together that I really, I really uh, was impressed by. The cool part about this workshop that we went to, this seminar, if you will, it wasn't just a guy standing up there, you know, running his mouth about leadership. We actually uh, got some hands-on practical experience doing this, and it was it was a lot of fun. If you ever get the opportunity to attend one of those seminars, uh, I highly recommend going. It's, it was definitely worth the, uh, the day I spent uh, there. And a couple of things that he talked about, which I really, um, I want to apply this not just to the business world and not just to, you know, the idea of, of combat, if you will, because this is where he gets his principles from, it's great. And I want to apply that to what we do on a daily basis as emergency managers. And so a couple of the core concepts that he has is the cover and move, make things simple, prioritize and execute and uh, the decentralized command. And and these are things that we, we really do practice on a regular basis, but putting them into context. And he goes into the concept of cover and move and cover and move. He says is the most fundamental and perhaps the only true gunfighting tactic, right? At its core. And the interesting thing is he's absolutely right. So when we move, if anybody who's been in the military, um, when we move, we're always sending down cover fire and we, you know, we go, you know, moving, bounding, and then, you know, the rounds are going down range to cover the guy who's moving. And then when he's set, he yells back set and the other guy starts moving, you know, bounding and then put down uh, foot cover fire for him. <clears throat> and so he explains this in his, uh, 
training, you know, to, for the civilian population that's out there or has never experienced it. And, and it, and it kind of makes sense, right? And this is what you're doing. And so, but he brings us back into the business concept of, of covering for your other divisions when you're doing business. And I want to bring this down to the idea of covering for your other uh, sections that you're working for, not just you're in the EOC type thing, but also we're covering, we're put, laying down cover fire, if you will, for the fire department. We're laying down cover fire, if you will, for the police department in a disaster. You know, for our politicians, for our city managers, for all those. That's what we do in the emergency operations center. We want to make sure that we're pulling in enough information that we're going to be able to share this information with the people who need to have it and give it to them in a timely manner. And we never want to have another area fail because we're holding on to information or we're not sharing the information or we're not putting the information together in a packet where people will really understand what's going on. You know, and if you think about with, you know, an incident's happening and weather, for instance, you know, we want to make sure that we have a good weather report coming in there that's solid because that way people can be prepared for that particular weather, whatever it is. Right, that's going to be out there. The the troopers that are going to be out doing the job, uh, the firefighters that are going to be out doing the job, those things are going to be highly important. So when we're putting together our plant intelligence section, they need to be looking out for that section. So that's the idea of cover and fire. Now, now, or cover and move, I should say. Now, in addition to this, during our daily jobs as emergency managers, we should be looking at how we are doing our job that is going to provide proper uh, uh, cover, if you will, and I'm using cover loosely here, not not cover up, right? Not hiding things, but the proper information that's going to be going to, again, our elected officials and to our city managers on the idea our jurisdiction prepared. You know, um, do we have enough working knowledge of the fire department or police department that we're supporting uh, EMS um, public health, you know, do we have enough knowledge about those areas that we're able to help them, right? And in turn, we need to build these relationships, right? And these relationships that we're going to build are going to really make people want to do it for us. And even in the training, uh, Jocko goes into the idea of relationships. And and as emergency managers, that's what we do, right? We're coordinators. We coordinate things. We have these relationships. And that's what we really get paid the big dollars for, for lack of a better term, right? Is to go and, and build these relationships amongst not just um, another emergency managers, but other divisions, um, other uh, counties, other states, if you will. That's why we do things like the International Association of Emergency Managers or our state associations or NEMA, those things, right? We do all these to build these relationships. So when we pick up the phone and we can make that phone call and say, hey, we need some help over here, and it's not the first time that you're hearing from me. And this is what we do here in the community that we're trying to create, or that we have created, I should say, uh, with, with Ian Weekly, is that we're creating those relationships across the board, right? We're bringing people in to have the conversations uh, about what the best practices are in emergency management. And I think that comes into what the uh, concepts of the cover and move are 
that he has with the uh, with combat leadership, right? It's re- it's creating those relationships and creating those divisions that uh, want to work together and not trying to backbite each other for those dollars and pennies that are out there from the federal government, right? That we are going to be able to share this resource and stuff, and we're going to work together to make sure that our communities are safe. I think that's at the end of the day. The other part of it he goes into is the concept of simple. And he states that combat, like anything else in life, has inherent layers of complexities. It goes simplifying as much as possible is crucial. And that was one of the principles that Brock Long was bringing to FEMA. And he wanted to make FEMA less complex. Think about that for a second, because I think that that was one of the um, driving forces for for FEMA at this point is to make things less complex. He wanted to take this big behemoth and make it simpler to work. And we need to do the same thing as local and, and state and county emergency managers is we need to kill the bureaucracy. We need to cut those onion layers down to, the, to as simple as possible. Why make things so difficult when you're processing, you know, the ID10T form, right? You know, why why can't we just make it so we're we're plain language like we tried to do or things like this that we, that make it easier for us to process that. Pick up the phone and make the phone call, right? And have things on the way. Yeah, we need to track paperwork. I get that. We need to have the ICS forms filled out, right? Which are which are a pain. But if you even you talk to Craig Fugate, He talks about the idea of the ICS zealot, right? Um, And he goes into the concept that we don't, ICS is a system. It's not the only system. It is a system. Is it effective? Sure. Can it be improved? For sure. But we get caught up in like these form numbers and what they are. Why can't we just, you know, do yellow pad if we need to, right? Do you walk around with ICS forms in the back of your car? You know, uh, your personal car I'm talking about. And, and if you need to get someplace to start doing ICS forms, no, we, but we can get a yellow pad of paper and start working things out. All right. You know, we talk about the, uh, the form, the paper napkin form, right? Where we do our first plan on the back of the, of the squad car or, or in the uh, cab of the engine, right? We make things so complicated. Uh, when it comes to our forms and our processes, we need to look at how can we simplify those processes? Because once you have the process made and made simplified, right, it becomes easy to use. And there's a reason why we break things down the way we do in the military. It's, it's across the board. We, we use the same concepts, right? Troop movements, you know, we might use different words every once in a while for different things, but you know, squad size, platoon size, division size, right? They're all very similar. And the reason why is because it works. And, and, and the concepts of, of warfare, if you will, have not changed much over the thousands of years that we've been trying to kill each other. You know, the concepts of what we do as firefighters and police officers, you know, it, although some of the tactics may have changed, but the basic concepts are, Pretty much the same. Put the wet stuff on the red stuff, right? Make sure the bad guy goes to jail. You know, those things are pretty simple, right? We need to simplify those processes, not make them more complex that we don't need to be, right? I think that's really the takeaway uh, on this uh, on this part of it here. 
again, prioritize and execute. I think we do a really good job here uh, on that part of it. We do look at what our priorities are, and I think we execute them pretty well. When it comes to response, recovery, we fail at recovery a lot of times because, again, we don't think about recovery until it's too late. At recovery really needs to be started to think about, right, right when the disaster starts, to, when it occurs, right, when that tornado rips through. Yeah, we're going to do rescue until the rescue's done. But people need to get whole again. And how do we prioritize and execute on the recovery? It's hard, right? We, we, we just don't, don't tend to do that well. And I think this is one of the areas in emergency management where if we use leadership properly prior to a disaster occurring, we can get into the concepts here of, of what the resiliency, what a resilient community is, how we can use that to really reflect um, the values of our, of our community and to prioritize that recovery when this occurs. We, it's not a matter of if a disaster is going to occur. It's not. We all know that at some point in our community, we're going to have a major event. Now, some communities have less vulnerability to it than others, but every community is going to have something happen, whether it's a train wreck, a bad bus accident, uh, you know, fire, uh, large building fire, uh, things that just really take them by surprise and are unable to handle it. Right outside of the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the floods, the things that happen like in these areas that we know that are happening, the wildland fires in, in California, which we know are going to be happening, the earthquake that could potentially come. Right, but every community is faced with some sort of hazard that they know is going to occur. And if you plan for that hazard for response, you need to plan for that hazard for recovery. You know, you need to keep the concept of resiliency in the fore when it comes to what you do as emergency managers. And I think that's really important as, as well. You need to recognize the situation that you're in. We need to recognize the situation that we might be in, right? And plan for that and work it out. And then the, the idea of decentralized command, and again, we use that pretty well in, in emergency management. And the idea of having, you know, incident commanders doing what they do, you know, and, and and the EOC doing what they do, you know, it's not top down. It's not coming. You're not getting direct orders from the mayor. It's going down to the troops. So I think we do that as well. And, and he talks a little bit about the idea of everybody needs to lead. And that comes into this process here. We need to start developing our leaders and giving trust to those that are subordinate to us in the chain of command of emergency management. We need to allow them to run some of the smaller events and not step in and take over just because you're the director of emergency management for the county of X. <clears throat> Develop those leaders to handle because you're not always going to be there. You're not always going to be there. One of the things that I really stressed um, to the people who work for me um, in different areas is that I may never be, I might, I might be gone at some point for some reason and you're going to have to take over and run this thing. And I think I did a pretty decent job in a couple of places where I was at and then I left and they were able to, to step up and, and do what they needed to do to make the place run. And you know, it sounds bad when they go, Oh, okay, you're gone and, and they don't miss what you're doing. That's because I trained people to do what I needed to have them do. And when I was gone, 
they were able to keep doing it. And But the thing that I loved about it is the idea that when I created programs and those programs are still there and the new people that come in are running them are still running the programs that I created, it kind of says something about the legacy that we created. And you don't do that by micromanaging the people that are underneath you. Your legacy is created by giving them the ability to run and letting them make plans and letting them have failures and letting them do what needs to be done and trusting that it's going to be done. doesn't mean that you don't look over the plans and take a look at it and have the conversations with them, but you need to have the trust in your people that work for you or that you, that are subordinate to you, that they're going to be able to get things done. And I, I love the idea here of the decentralized command, allowing the junior people in your organization to do some of the heavy work to be able to fail if they need to fail. Right? We're not looking for them to fail on the big disaster, right? We're talking about training exercises, things like this, where if they can make those mistakes there, that's where you want them to make the mistakes. I think it's important to really have that understanding and concept of what they mean by failing first. And you learn more from failures. And that's one of the things that we do poorly also as emergency managers is when we do our our, our after-action reports and our debriefs or hot washes, whatever you want to call them. And uh, I, I think that is something that we need to discuss. So let's take a quick break here. Let's listen to our sponsors because without them, we can't do what we're doing. And when we return, let's talk about truly being brutal to yourself when we do our after action reports, our debriefs, or if you want to call them a hot wash, the hot wash. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Hey, welcome back from that break. And, and thank you so much for, for taking those couple seconds just to listen to uh, our sponsors and, and what they have to offer. And please, you know, go reach out to them and tell them that you heard about them here on Ian Weekly because, you know, without them, we can't provide a good quality programming that we uh, are providing. So now on to the rest of the discussion. So a couple of things here on the, we, before the break, we're talking about the concept of really breaking down hard on the debrief. And the thing here is, is that we can't grow unless we know what we did wrong. And, you know, I had a, um, we had a guest on, uh, Joe Bernard, who was a PJ and he was a PJ commander. And he talks about the fact that they come back in from training or they come back from in from a, uh, a rescue and we know that they did 90% of the stuff right. We all do, right? We go out there, we do 90%, but they want to talk about that 10% that they did poorly or not necessarily poorly. Maybe they could have done just a little bit better. And I think that's a really important thing to take away. 
And in this training, they talk about the same thing, right? The SEALs do it. The Rangers do it. The Force Recon guys do it. They come back and they debrief what went bad. Because if you sit around and just pat yourself on the back and say, oh, we did such a great job on this, you're not going to learn anything from, from that event, right? And we tend to do this in emergency management. We sit around going, oh, what a great job you guys did. You know, this is awesome. There might be a couple of things here and here we could do a little bit better, but we really focus on the victory. And I, I get it because no one wants to walk away feeling like they did poorly, right? But, you know, you need to be brutal to your, on yourself when you talk about um, what we did wrong. Because if we don't bring this up, it's going to fail again. And I'll tell you, every time we do a debrief, what's the first thing they put on, on the board? Communications. Communication sucked. Getting information to and from. <laughs> we, we do that, but we don't fix it. Right? We don't take time to fix that issue. We just go, yep, it's going to be a problem, and that's it. Why is that? You know, why, why is it? Why can't we sit down? I mean, yeah, is it an easy answer? No, it's not an easy answer. All right? It's going to be a hard process to fix the communication issue. And, you know, that being said, they talked about this in the training that communication was a problem uh, for them as well in combat, not just the fog of war type stuff, but just because too many people are yip-yapping on the radio. And it happens during large-scale events, right? Too many people get on the radio and they yip-yap and you can't communicate. And so, you know, he said to his troops, hey, no one's talking on the radio. Nobody. As a matter of fact, you know, in some cases, they just turn the radio off because it was better to talk face-to-face. Now, I'm not saying that's the solution that we have to have, but there has to be something that's done better for our communication issue because if it's always on the board when we have a disaster, that means it's a known quantity, and that means it's something that we can really put our teeth into and, and fix. Now, there's various different ways we could do it, right? Talk to the ham guys. They're, oh, ham radio is the answer. Or you talk to other people, oh, everybody needs to have a satellite phone. You know, you know what, what is the answer? Uh, but I think sitting down through and, and really taking a hard look at what it is, I think we can come up with that, pro- that, that uh, solution. The other idea that I really took away from this training was the idea of subordinate your ego. And most of us that are in this field are A-type personalities, high-driven. Our ideas are going to be the best. We're the ones who you know, can have the solution to everything. But we aren't, right? I mean, everybody has really good input. And I think we're coming to the point to where if you can subordinate your ego and somebody comes up with a damn good plan and you go, okay, we're going to go with it, go with it, right? And I think we do a halfway decent job with this, uh, but you see this come into play a lot of times where fire and police kind of get into it uh, of who's going to be in charge of this incident and who's going to do this or that. And the leaders need to subordinate their ego when they when it comes into this because the concept that we're hearing here, right, is that we need to put the public safety first, not our badges and patches. And I think sometimes we, we run into that, that problem. And we run into that problem, again, 
during our, our debriefs or hot wash if something did go wrong because then we get to point the finger at the other agency saying, well, they screwed up, right? They made the mistake, not our guys. Or, you know, that team was screwed up. They weren't where they're supposed to be, not our guys. And the funny part about it is when Jocko was given his presentation, he really used those type of stories that happened uh, with training and things that happened in the SEALs that people would point fingers at, at things. And he's talking about the idea with leadership is that we own it. Own your outcomes. Learn from that. Learn from the mistakes that you've made or that your team has made and figure out how can we improve on that by owning those outcomes. Because if you start laying out blame at these things, you never will learn from them, right? You know, a couple of things that came out of here that I thought was really interesting is the concept of doing what he called a blender training, right? Blender training. And what is this? It's when you take your SOPs, just jumble them all up and go out there and, and train that way. And I thought that was kind of interesting concept because when we train, we have our, 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 training plan, our exercise plan up there, and we have our measles out there put in there, and we got this and this and that and that ready to go. And I think sometimes if we take that, go through the planning process, and then just take it up and jumble it up a little bit to, to put people on their toes, I think that's a, actually a, a really, a really cool idea. Continuous training. Don't wait for that yearly or, or biannual um tabletop exercise or, or, or functional exercise, do quick drills, quick tabletop exercises, understand it's going to occur and, and, and do them that day. You know, when I was over in Okinawa doing EMS for the, as a Navy corpsman, um, we would do our drills um, daily or every other day uh, with the ambulance crews that are out there. And because there weren't enough regular calls daily for us, Right, we would get our clinic stuff done, but the outside in the field in the uh, in the austere environment, if you will. So we would set up drills every day, and it, it was worth it, right? Because the guys got to go out, you know, go code three to a place, get in there, start working on a victim, quote unquote, right? And it's doing those, right? If you don't have the drill, or if you don't have the disaster happening, you know, once a week or something, you're gonna get rusty, you know, and there's the concept there is, is is solid because we do it with with fire where they, the fire guys go out and they they burn a tower or whatever because you don't get fires every week you know uh the coppers they go out and they shoot guns every quarter at least where we're here <laughs> and and they get used to you know the muscle memory of doing that because obviously they're not in gun battles every day so doing these uh quick tabletop exercises for emergency management really makes sense to me and uh the other thing too is we have to get asking better questions and i i have to get better at asking better questions even in my daily job, right? You know, there's assumptions that you make and sometimes those assumptions aren't really what are there. And so really having a, asking those better questions and then understanding the commander's intent. I think those are all really important and we do a good job with getting the commander's orders, right? And, and putting our goals and objectives based upon what the, 
the commander wants, right? But what is the commander's intent? And does everybody, when I say everybody, not just the person writing the plan, does everybody from the top down understand what that is? And so you need to really have this communication, right? Back to that question. We need to have this communication. Does everybody know? Does the guy who is driving the food van, you know, who works for us, know what the commander's intent is? If you look at the large campaign fires, right, that's the other question that we have to ask. Does everybody in that command post, does everybody who's on that fire from the hot shot to the, you know, the smoke jumper, does everybody know what the commander's intent is. In emergency management, we need to become more innovative. We need to look not just at the new technology that's coming out, but what are the trends that are going on in the field of science, in the field of management, in the field of leadership, right? What are we doing to reach out to the community to get them involved in what we do on a daily basis. How do we build that resilient community? I think we need to be more innovative about what we do. You know, we get so caught up into the concepts of, well, this is what they used to do. This is the way we've always done it. You know, we come from this history of whatever, and we need to change some of that. And we need to get better at being innovative uh, in this field of emergency management. And I think we see this coming out of some of the um, literature uh, from emergency management today. But are we implementing a lot of those? Looking at new tactics, if you will. Looking at uh, the emerging technology. Uh, looking at um, what is going on in the journals. How many of you all read the Journal of Emergency Management? You know, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see more people reading that journal. How many of you guys read the dispatch from IEM or disaster resiliency blog or whatever else is out there that, that you can get um, educated on with the trends that are happening in emergency management? Now, you guys all are probably a little bit more likely to be engaged in this stuff because, I mean, obviously you're here listening to Ian Weekly, and, and that means you're probably more interested in learning more about emergency management, but we can all do better at doing this. We're at the time of the day here where we're over with what we have. I want to keep these, uh, you know, around 30 minutes or so. Uh, I'm so happy to have you guys listening in, and I have a lot of heavy stuff that we just brought up during this conversation, so I'd really love to have you guys reach out to me. Let's chat about what I discussed here today and what do you think specifically about leadership that we can bring to emergency management and help elevate the profession of emergency management. Yeah, I, Nick Crosley, uh, past president of IEM, you know, gets mad when we talk about the elevation of the profession of emergency management because he says, I am a professional emergency manager. And Nick, you're absolutely right. And those of us that are here listening probably are professional emergency managers, right? But we also have positions to where um, they're being done by collateral officers, collateral firefighters, things like this that are doing emergency management that don't do it uh, as a profession. They do it uh, as a collateral duty. And what can we do to, to lead emergency management 
into that next threshold to where we are just as recognized uh, as a firefighter or police officer. Ending note here. The other day I was at a, a veterans mixer and I was wearing a, uh, a shirt that said emergency management on it. And people would ask me, what is an emergency manager? And it's a great question. And I answered it strongly. But the funny part about it, how many people ask that question? Because if I walked in there wearing something that said police or firefighter, they wouldn't have that question. Lead strong, lead faithfully, and I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>